in that regard, he was probably exactly opposite of Gibson, who enjoyed a good laugh and didn't want anybody to know that. And where Brock didn't mind, he even wanted everybody to know that he could laugh and he would laugh with you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by Hall of Famer Rick Hummel, because I thought, how better to end the year than to just share some stories, Rick, of the icons that we lost this year. Um, two Redcoats, uh, Dick Allen, an all-star for the Cardinals. Of course, the two Redcoats being Bob Gibson and Lou Brock. Um, this this was a difficult year all around, but it seems like opening day is going to be missing something whenever opening day is because we won't have two of the defining personalities, two really defining players in Cardinals history there. Can you put into perspective? I mean, they're, they're on the Mount Rushmore of, of Cardinals, right? They, they helped make the Cardinals who they are today as much as Red Shandings and Stan Musial did, correct? That might be your four right there, you know. I mean, you could have have Ozzie and, and Pujols and, and a couple other candidates there, but, uh, but Gibson and Brock are certainly on there um, because of their longevity here. Uh, Gibson played his entire career here, which was 17 seasons. Brock played 16 seasons after having two or three with the Cubs. And, of course, Stan had, what, 22, and Red had uh, a whole bunch, too, and he came back as a pinch hitter. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, those guys, uh, not only are those guys great Cardinals, and, and, and you, you you miss them for that, but they I became friends with all those guys, and that's just, a, you know, you lose a friend, that's that's hard no matter what he does. Did, did they give as much? I, obviously, we all know their stats. I mean, Lou Brock is the all-time NL steals king. Bob Gibson set records that are never going to be broken probably for pitchers with the Cardinals and of course changed the game in 1968 with by forcing them to lower the mound. Do you think their contributions after their career to what it meant to be Cardinals was also valuable? Can you describe what they did for years after their careers? Well, you only hope that for all the years they came to spring training or popped up on opening day for sure. And, and occasionally during the season, not very often, especially in Gibson's case, because he didn't live here. You hope those younger players and even the older players were paying attention, especially the younger players, the older players knew, I think the younger players, maybe most of them knew, but, but some had to be nudged a little bit by a veteran that say, Hey, do you know who this is? <laughs> you <better> listen. <laughs> Like the names on their jerseys or their number. The fact that they wore jerseys around with numbers that also hung in the clubhouse as retired, I thought maybe should give it away. A little that bit. ought to be a clue. Yeah, that'll be the first clue. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you? I want to. I want. I want to just hear tales about Lou Brock and Bob Gibson. But first, let's touch on Dick Allen. Um, he had the one year with the Cardinals, 101 RBIs. He was an All Star that year, and you told me about how he was. McGuire before McGuire was McGuire, kind of the first like you know power show that the Cardinals had. Well, he hit in the old Bush Stadium, the second Bush Stadium, I should say. Uh, before they moved the fences in, when it was four fourteen to center, 
and it was like three, oh, 80, I think, to the power alleys, ridiculous numbers. And, and it was below street level, and you had to have a bazooka to, to hit it out. <laughs> uh, Dick Allen hit 17 home runs at that ballpark, matched 17 years later by, by uh, Jack Clark. I think the fences had been moved in a little bit by then. So that wasn't quite, that was a notable achievement, but Alan did it before they moved the fences in. And he didn't have any, like, you know, just grazing the wall. <laughs> they got over, <laughs> they got over fast. Uh, so he swung, was, he was launch angle, exit velocity. He was all of it before we knew what those words were. And he was the only one using a telephone pole for a bat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else used, uh, you know, 34 inches, 35 inches, maybe 34 ounces. He was using 40 and 40. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Wow. He was, so he became a Cardinal through the, through the historic Kurt Flood trade, correct? Is that? Yeah, that's I, that people, remember? people don't realize that. I mean, they just think about Kurt Flood going and also that in that trade, Bill White and McCarver went too. That was a pretty good, pretty good swap. Yeah. yeah. For Dick Allen and, and, uh, a couple other players uh, were involved, but um, yeah. And Allen played just the one year in 1970, you know, the year that of course the flood did not play uh, for anyone. And then he went for Ted Sizemore the year after that to the Dodgers. And I, the only way I can figure that is that uh, he wasn't maybe the most, What's the right word? Punctual, perhaps, of performers. Uh, I'm told he wasn't, you know, maybe, game time was on time for, for Dick pretty much. <laughs> he was actually he was still a rich. show and go guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe, just maybe he might have, you know, stopped somewhere on the way. But uh, nonetheless, uh, <laughs> uh, he, when he got to the ballpark, he, he was all bat and uh, he kind of disdained. Fielding. I mean, he would have been a wonderful DH had they had that in the National League then. In fact, the American League didn't even have it at that point in 1970. But yeah, that would have been his true calling, where he wouldn't have had to wear a glove at all or stand in the field ever. He might have <laughs> set all kinds of records then. Because <laughs> he would yeah. give some runs back you know, on defense. You would hit the ball to him, and you wouldn't get to it. Or, you know, he just, he just wasn't interested in defense. But he was interested in hitting that ball over the wall. And he was a great average hitter, too. And he could also run. I'm going to put you on the spot here. I mean, he never got more than 19% of the vote on the hall of fame ballot. Um, And yet, you know, he's got some baseball reference does this interesting thing where they sort of compare hitters. They, they use a, an algorithm to come up with a number to define a career and then compare it against other hitters. And uh, you wrote recently against the guy who he actually has the highest comparative score to similar as far as similarity goes. And that's Ryan Braun. Also on this list is Lance Berkman, Reggie Smith, Ellis Burks, um, Nelson Cruz, current free agent. Uh, George Foster is on this. I mean, so it, it, it's sort of like the Hall of Very Good. Were you? Did you support his Hall of Fame candidacy? I did. Um, it's uh, during the voting process. He just didn't get enough support from the writers who had fifteen shots at him because. He didn't much care for them either um, <laughs> on a regular basis. He only wanted to hit. And uh, 
I don't know if those writers held that against them. You know, there were 400 and some that had to vote in those elections and, and you know, 380 to 400 had to vote for him. So that probably hurt him, his relationship with them. And also perhaps the fact that he never played on a championship team, that he never played in the playoffs, but then neither did Ernie Banks. And he had no trouble getting in. Of course, Ernie had a little bit more cachet with the writers than yeah. Yeah. Allen did. But I think that those are the two things. And after that, in the Hall of Fame overview committee, of which I've been a member for uh, about 20 years, we would consider Dick Allen every every time that era came up. And he's had a couple sniffs at it. He missed by one vote the last time. What really hurt him was about maybe five years ago, the Hall wanted to add one more era and he kind of fell in the middle between two of the new eras. And it was decided that he was more productive in the 60s than he was in the 70s, which is an awful tough call if you look at those numbers. But uh, yeah, um, um, but he missed that the next election for what it would have been his other era. He had to, had to wait like four or five more years to get on at all because it's just the, the way they, they broke the time frames on those things. So he should have been in already. Uh, before now, and then, and then, of course, missing by only one vote, I guess it was two or three years ago, he surely would have made it, had there been a vote this month at the winter meetings, which would have been in Dallas, am I correct? Uh, mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, in Dallas. It would have been no contest, and he, he died right about the day that vote would have been taking place, just about, I guess, or pretty close to it. Uh, yeah, but, um, he died at age 78, um, yeah. which is... Oof. Um, a lot, but yeah, that uh, it, it, his stats are impressive. I mean, he had, uh, you know, it, for the Cardinals that one year, he had 30 home runs, 101 RBIs. Um, you know, he or 34 home runs, excuse me, 101 RBIs. You know, had a 9.37 OPS. So while everybody's focused on the uh, on the on the OPS that the Cardinals could use right now, gosh, you know, three years later for the White Sox, he he led the league in in power i mean 37 home runs 113 rbis 99 walks um a 1000 ops uh, just a remark that was the year he won the mvp there in 72 and retired with 351 home runs uh 912 ops i mean some numbers that like look i mean 292 batting average 378 on base percentage i mean you wonder like are those the those are the kind of rates that well i guess albert Pujols is just below 300 now. Um, and Dick Allen obviously doesn't have the same counting stats. He's uh, got 1,848 hits. I mean, it's just really a, a, a complete career as far as a guy who would, in today's language, do damage. And I guess he didn't have that burning desire to continue. I, I think he could have played a few more years. Mm. But he, he chose not to. He liked horses a lot and liked to you know, train them and and uh, and uh, I don't think ride them. Probably he's probably too big for that. But he just <laughs> uh, the uh, I would have liked to have seen the '71 Cardinals team. That was with my first year here. If they hadn't traded Allen to L.A. for Sizemore, Sizemore's a fine fellow, but uh, you would have had Allen, Joe Torre, who became the MVP in in '71. Ted Simmons was becoming of age as a as a regular catcher then. 
In fact, that that started the dominoes moving. Uh, it got Tory to third base, and, and would have put Allen from third base to first base. But they had the different first baseman. They had a succession of first basemen in '71, '72, like uh, Joe Hagan, I think was in it. Matty Alou played first base in some of those teams, and, and uh, um, they just to have Allen and Torrey back to back in the lineup with, with a young Ted Simmons, with Lou Brock leading off, that'd be a pretty good offense. Yeah, and they only finished what? Oh, they only finished seven games behind the Pirates that year. They seven won and the Pirates, and the, and Pirates had a world championship team. The Pirates had a really good club then. That was their, maybe one of their best teams ever. Yeah, the Cardinals have the second best record in the National League. They just, you know, were in the same division as the Pirates. They didn't have, you know, didn't have quite the enough pitching to pull it off. Mm. They were good. They were really good. Uh, so I don't know. We'll never know, I guess. I mean, I'd like to have seen Dick Allen more than one year here. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about Lou Brock and Bob Gibson for the rest of the podcast. But first, I wanted to put kind of Dick Allen's career in perspective, not just with the one year sliver of his career that he spent here with St. Louis. I want to tell people about our sponsor. Imagine your home totally organized closet by design of St. Louis can help you get organized with 40% off plus an additional 15% off and get free installation. Call 1-800 by design today. That's 1-800 B Y D E S I G N 1-800 by design closet by design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Every spring training, Rick, when I would go to the ballpark and it would be the week, two weeks that Bob Gibson was there, he would greet me with about the same phrase, um, expressing wonderment that they had kept me employed for another year. (laughs) (laughs) He would say, they're still paying you to do this. They still they still pay you to write baseball. You're still pulling one over on them. It was a different phrase, but same sentiment. That was a term of endearment, though. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, shoo. Great. Uh, I thought I'd really arrived when he turned my name into a growl. Like, that's (laughs) that's when I knew that, like, okay, I'm, hello, Mr. Gibson. And he goes, Gould. Like, like, yeah, yeah, I've done done it. I've done that. Well, um, what, what was his greeting to you, and how did it change through the years? Well, in recent years, when I'd call him, he'd answer the phone and say, what? But <laughs> 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 Which was my cue to, to think, but proceed ahead. That means he, he's okay to talk. You know, he's, he's free. <laughs> he didn't say, what do you want? He just says, what? <laughs> um, it, it, and if he didn't answer, that's when you knew you weren't. Yeah, was there yeah. Another clue that he gave. Yeah, well, unfortunately, when he didn't answer the, the day that Brock had died. Mm. Um, I suspicioned that he wasn't doing well, and his wife then confirmed that to me. And then, mm. you know, three or four weeks later, he was dead. But uh, during our years together, I think when I was cutting my teeth as a number two and three guy covering the team in the 70s, mid 70s, uh, he seemed to. I wouldn't say take a liking to me, but he, he took a tolerance to me, I guess, when I'd show up and I'd be kind of fresh meat for him. He, he didn't give me too rough a time at all. And then I, I really got to know him well when I did a Hall of Fame, an article about him going in the Hall of Fame for our paper and for the Sporting News. I did two pieces in 1981. 
and spent some time at his home on one day in um, Omaha. And uh, well, it was during the strike, so it had to be, shoot, let's say July of 81, something like that, or maybe late June, 81, because there were no games going on because the strike happened in June. Yeah. And um, and the Hall of Fame was in late July. So I went out there one day. I flew into Omaha and uh, rented a car. And he had asked me to meet him at his, he had a restaurant <clears throat> then. And we went down there and talked for a while. And then he said, come on out to the house. I've just built a new deck and, uh, and you know, come on out and see Wendy. And, and uh, so I knew her a little bit. Uh, and um, got out there and we talked some more. And he offered to barbecue for me, I, which of course I accepted. And I had forgotten that I had to do a radio show that night. And I told him that, and he said, "That's okay. We'll wait. We'll wait till you're wait till you're done to eat." This is Bob Gibson saying this now. It's yeah. astonishing. So he, he, I did that. He did that. We talked some more. We went down to the restaurant again, had a few more drinks, and now it's well. I got there about noon, and now it's about nine ten o'clock, and we're getting ready to go. I'm going back to the hotel. I'm going to fly back here the next morning. He's going home. And we're all walking to the parking lot. He says, Wendy, Wendy, can you believe this? I've been talking to a sports writer for nine hours. <laughs> and uh, so that, I guess that was the day that I had arrived in his, his team. And they, the years that he'd, we'd see him at the Hall of Fame, he'd always invite me. He, he and she would invite me to eat breakfast with him at least once at the wow, Otisaga wow. Hotel. And, uh, and then I could just call him about anything virtually and he he liked to talk and and he you know that this tough hard-nosed bob gibson uh had a, a soft spot he he watched soap operas oh really wow. <laughs> he watched you know young and the restless was his favorite i think but uh, i had to make sure i didn't call during those particular times when they were on yeah couple times i did sense. That'll and, make a Cardinal uh, fan really happy because a Cardinal fan writes for Young and the Restless. Yeah. So I, I annoyed him a couple of times when I, I'd forgotten that the, what time those were on. I did not a big fan of those myself. But, uh, I so many things. He would even when the when this this strange year of statistics came up, I asked him if if he would be all right with it if somebody had a lower ERA than 1.12, even though it was only a 60-game schedule. I said, yeah, that's all right. That's, if they can do that, more power to them. I mean, Trevor Bauer got to 173, which is excellent, but mm-hmm. that's, that's still hard to get to 1.12, no matter if it's a five-game schedule, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, might be easier as a reliever these days, but yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing about – oh, there's so many things about him. The one – he has stats galore, too, including that 68 season, but the – the stat that I don't think anybody will ever come close to topping or even equaling is he pitched, he made nine World Series starts. And in those starts, the bullpen pitched one inning. Wow. He pitched 81 innings, which is nine per game, because one of the games went 10. 
And in one of the games, he went only eight, that adding up to 81. So the bullpen pitched one inning of not World wow. Series starts. Two available. Wow. Yeah. What, what do you think was his did – you, did you get a sense? Did he volunteer or did you ask of all the things he accomplished, what, what maybe he – I don't know if – I guess the phrase is most proud of, but maybe maybe the one that he cherished. That's the word I'm looking for. What was the thing that he did that he most cherished? I think the, the game when he beat Boston and Lomborg – Game seven at Fenway Park in 1967, and he had a home run in that game mm-hmm. uh, off Lonborg. and uh, that's the game I think it wasn't his greatest game ever, but it was a complete game, of course, and it was more complete because he had a home run, and uh, uh, there was a, a tale that made the rounds that before they, they stayed in. Quincy, Mass., which is where the 2004 Cardinal team stayed and didn't like it very much when they played the Red Sox in the World Series. <laughs> yeah. but, but they didn't have they didn't have breakfast. They didn't have time for breakfast for for the for some of the players before they went to the park. And Gibson had only burnt toast, I think. And then he, he got on the bus. And Bob Bragg, our longtime sports editor, was covering the series then. And he he uh, had worked in Boston for a few years. So he knew some spots along the way to Fenway park and he was riding the bus with the team and he hopped off at, at one of the delis or whatever and bought a couple of fried egg uh, and maybe ham, maybe just a Friday fried egg sandwich at this deli and took them and gave them to the clubhouse guy, visiting clubhouse guy in Boston, hmm. make sure Gibson got him cause he didn't have any breakfast. So, uh, when Gibson performed like this, Brake took great, great delight in, in, in helping to feed Bob Gibson on this momentous day. And uh, Gibson, in fact, had not had a sandwich. He had one sandwich after the game, but didn't have one before the game. But it made for a great story anyway. That's fun. So I, it, I was going to ask you if you had a sandwich story because I, I know the legend of the Brake fried egg sandwich. One of the longest conversations I had with. Uh, with Bob Gibson in spring training was while he was eating lunch and talking about, uh, you know, Stan Musial and his place in the, in defining the Cardinals and everything. And I still have the tape of it, but he, he's talking between bites of, <laughs> of an egg sandwich. Uh, and so I, I wonder, I guess, I guess you have your barbecue story every, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't have a, have a, have some kind of meal story with Bob Gibson. He liked his wine too. He was, he would come to the writer's dinner. We would honor him on many occasions, just to make sure he could, we would come, but he would uh, insist. I think insist is the right word here too. He wouldn't just ask for, he would insist upon either champagne or really top shelf good wine. So we provided that for him, made sure he had that and he was okay. Then he, he said, okay, I'll be there, <laughs> but you had to come through on your end. <laughs> I uh, I was struck. I saw him in spring training, um, you know, and 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 kept my respectful distance from him for many years. Um, but I was struck most in 2006, after that Cardinals team beat the Tigers in Game Five, and the champagne celebration was going on and everything like that. And I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly. 
but the late Joe Strauss, you and I, and Bernie, for a while, a lot of us were uh, were covering that and carrying on a conversation with Tony Larusa after the clincher, and he was adding to some of the things he said in the press conference. Walked into his office, and there Bob Gibson was waiting for him. Um, and I thought that was such an interesting like moment um, because for years, and you you heard this probably for a long time. Tony would say that it was Gibson that told him you're not part of the club until you have a championship. Right. You know, and there he was like in that celebration to, to almost welcome to the club kind of. It, well, it was exactly it. Yeah. And then those two guys had, had spent many a night together drinking wine and talking ball. And, and, and uh, one time I got in, involved in discussion and it was late and they were arguing back and forth. I said, look, neither one of you guys is making any sense at all. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> was, uh, was Gibson a, a, a storyteller? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah, he, he would tell stories about, you know, red Shane Deans would go to the mound. Gibson he was thinking Gibson was, in trouble and, and Red would say, well, how you doing? How you feeling? And Gibson would kind of look toward the bullpen and say, who you got down there? And Red would say, so-and-so. Gibson says, I'm fine. What the, I was always struck too by the, people who talked about his kind of gruff, intimidating personality and how those were his best friends, you know, Joe Torrey, uh, Tim McCarver, these guys who well had to catch him and, you know, got to know him that way, but they are just, they, they, they love the guy. Like, you know, like he's part of their family. And I just, I was always struck by how, you know, these stories of intimidation were not so much stories of intimidation. They were just stories of adoration and love. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, um, you know, Gibson enjoyed that veneer, as it were. You know, he was a protect, a good shield for him. But they they would do, those, these guys would do anything for Bob Gibson. And, and McCarver was, was notably broken up, you know, the day that Gibson died when I tried to talk to him about it. And then, and Tory was didn't respond. I think he was equally as broken up. He just didn't even want to get on the phone, you know, at that point, mm-hmm. but they, uh, they cherished him and, and, and they will, will, will tell stories about him. And McCarver tells the, you know, the story of, about going to the mound to remind Gibson about whatever, you know, they talked about before the game concerning certain hitters and Gibson would say, why don't you just get back behind the plate? The only thing you know about pitching is you can't hit it. <laughs> and, so, and so they went <laughs> Carver dutifully put his mask back on and walked that's back right, that's right case closed <laughs> through through that time that you spent with him in Omaha or even through the years did you find him to offer more to describe more to, to open up about what his experience was like as a young player particularly a, a young African-American player? Sometimes, but I, um, 
he talked about being with the Globetrotters a little bit mm. and, and, and even playing against the Globetrotters. He was like on a college all-star squad. And maybe that, that's what they saw in him. But, the, but uh, when they had these exhibition games, uh, when Gibson would play for the, for the all-stars, he, he was trying to win. He didn't get the idea that Globetrotters were supposed to win every game. <laughs> <laughs> he was playing to win and they said wait a minute this is not how we do this just go along with the program here <laughs> um I, I think he, he he told me some stories about uh their lodging and in, in spring training in st petersburg for instance and he thought one year he had a, a line on a, a really good place right next to the Al Lang Stadium. It was probably the, the previous Al Lang Stadium in St. Pete. And he goes in there and he says, I'm Bob Gibson with the, maybe a second, third year in the, in the league, maybe second year in the league. I'm Bob Gibson with the St. Louis Cardinals. And, and the guy behind the desk says, yes, go right through those, those doors. There'll be somebody to take care of you. We went right through the doors and he was outside again. There was a car waiting, waiting to take him to a, like a boarding house where the, uh. the Yankees black players and the Cardinals black players were staying and they were treated well there. But, but that, that was just, you know, he was in this good hotel and he said, well, just run right through the double doors there. You'll be fine. He was down the street. Oh, my gosh. Do you, do you have a sense of how that drove him? Like, what what did that play into the ferocity that he that he pitched with? Well, I'm sure that had something to do with it. He had all kinds of illnesses and, and, and things wrong with him as a kid. He had asthma and rickets and... and uh, Oh, yeah. You know, of course, all sorts of, he had a little heart issue. And, and um, so he, he was, he was always playing from behind in his mind. You know, he was trying to show everybody he could, he could do this. Uh, and even having got to the big leagues and playing for Sally Hemus, who had him in the bullpen right away, he didn't like that. And he vowed to show Sally Hemans he could be a big league starter, and he, and he was under mostly under Johnny Keene, and mm-hmm. then of course Red for all those other years. Um, I, I think, uh, and then from a on field standpoint, he was driven to be that good because for whatever reason the teams he played for in the '60s barely scored for him. He, like when he was had the big year in nineteen. 19- 68, 1.12, he won, you know, 20-some games. Uh, the Cardinals averaged three runs a game. <laughs> three! <laughs> when he was pitching. That makes this year's team seem like a juggernaut. Yeah. He says, you know, he was pitching, he'd go against pitch against Drysdale or Marshall or Koufax. He said, if I gave him one or, one or two runs, we were done. <laughs> I had to be that good. Through, through the years, how did you see his and in- Lou Brock's friendship develop and and sort of uh, fortify both of them? I think they were always friends. You know, I'm sure Gibson helped Brock a lot when he came over to the team in 64 because Gibson had been there mm-hmm. five, six years at that point. And um, Brock was maybe not as confident as a younger player as he was later on after he achieved things. And Gibson would help him with that, and Gibson would would uh, would keep him loose. So Gibson was quite the class clown sometimes, you know. Even though he, he doesn't 
give you that side of him very often either. Didn't give me that side of him very often. And uh, he would make fun of Brock a little bit. Brock would, would uh, later in their careers, and even after their careers were over, Brock loved to talk. And he'd get wound up in these these sentences that had no punctuation or anything. And they just keep going, you know, and he'd be talking and then be making some sense, but it was, he would, it could use maybe 38 words when maybe 12 or 15 would have sufficed, but he was, you know, he was just trying to make a point. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he would not necessarily get all the names right all the time. He he called me rich Humboldt for years, you know, and Gibson would, <laughs> would, would cackle when he heard that he'd, he'd say, Hey Lou, Hey, Lou, you know who's out there? Rich Humboldt is out there wanting to talk to you. <laughs> and Brock would laugh, and he finally got it right. But Gibson would not let him up on that for a long time. That's great. What What was your first uh, encounter with Brock? Well, the one that was, I guess, the most meaningful, <clears throat> I'd covered some games as a backup earlier, but in 78, I'd taken over full-time covering the team. And Brock was in the midst of his 221 season. And manager, um, well, Rapp had started the year, then Kenny Boyer took over. And there were, there was some, you know, wonderment in their minds that Brock wasn't, wasn't done at that stage because he was, 39 years old then, um, <clears throat> almost 39. And um, I wrote something to that effect. It, it had my name on it. It was not my opinion necessarily, but it had my name on it. <clears throat> and Brock took considerable umbrage with that, as it turned out, and did not talk to me for the for the rest of the season, which was about three months worth. Ooh. And then... Uh, that season ended. It was an awful season. There was no postseason play. They barely finished the season at all. And uh, spring training of 79, I made a point of going over to his locker and trying to, you know, settle the score, as it were, see what, what was really on his mind, even though I had a, a pretty good idea. And he told me that, that he didn't think I had been around long enough to make the judgment on whether he was – finished or not. And I said, well, that really wasn't my judgment. I was just portraying, you know, I'm not portraying, but, but uh, chronicling what others, you know, the managers had, had thought, other uh-huh. people had thought. He said, well, you're wrong. And I'm going to show you that you're wrong. And um, I just didn't think you, you, you had the right to say those things. Well, then that season was kind of a, Retirement tour. Well, it was a retirement tour. It was not even so or sort of. It was a retirement tour. Every place he went, he was honored by teams. Oh, giving he, gifts and stuff. Yeah, wow. yeah, gifts. And he would ultimately end up speaking to boys clubs or, or civic groups or whatever, like mornings before night wow. games. And I would. He asked me if I wanted to go along on these things. And I said sure. So I went to almost all these things, maybe ten, twelve different things in the league. You know, there were eleven. What, how many? They had twelve teams, I guess then, and. Uh, um, so I'd go everywhere with them and uh, see how they revered him and, and how the things he had to say at these gatherings, these luncheons were, were, were quite moving, quite, quite, you know, well thought out. 
and uh, we got to be pretty close that year, and uh, um, that continued, you know, well into our later years. He, for some reason, always called me Junior uh, when I huh. when I was reporting, and then for whatever reason, I started calling him Junior after he was done playing. So we just missed Junior and Junior for the rest of. <laughs> Hello, Junior. Hello, Junior. Like, a, you know. Um, Is that how you greeted each other on the stage then in Cooperstown when, when you were? Uh... <laughs> well, uh, I don't think I had much. He was sitting behind me, I know. Uh, I, think I, was, I think my eyes were straight ahead at that point. I didn't want to look behind me and see what too see much. What they were making yeah. at you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can, can you? Can you maybe elaborate on some of the, did he tell those when he went to the boys and girls clubs or when he would make those visits, did he tell his story like uh, coming from Louisiana? Would, would he, would he connect with them in another way? Do you, can you yeah, know? No, he'd be, he'd be, I think he was born in El Dorado, Arkansas, but he, he was in Louisiana for a lot of his life. And uh, he would, and he was, you know, dirt poor and he would pass along and Hey, you can, if you work at it, you can do this. You can get, you can better yourself. You can better your family's life. You can better your own life, um, but you have to work at it and work hard. And, and and he was big in he was big into study. He was quite a mathematics. Uh, I don't know about genius, but pretty close to it. He, he was he was the first one at doing base running analytics as it as it was. Uh, yeah. And uh, this is in the seventies, of course. Maybe in the sixties mostly seventies and he was a sharp guy. And, uh, but he would pass along, Hey, you can do it. If you put your mind to it, that's sort of, that simplifies it, I guess, but that's, that's the message he would convey many times to the, to the young people. I was always struck by how Lou Brock tried to connect with everyone in a room. You know, that, that just always kind of struck me, like whether it was, you know, at the ballpark at a suite or whether it was, you know, at in spring training in the clubhouse or, you know, I mean, obviously there's the story of Adam Wainwright's one of his first spring trainings where Lou Brock goes up to him to ask him for an autograph. And like, that's the moment of connection or, you know, you know reporters who Lou Brock jokes around with, um, you know, or, or he sees like, say, Ozzie Smith talking to reporters and Lou Brock will come up and kind of, you know, uh, what, you know, needle Ozzy Smith a little bit just to get people laughing. Um, I've also seen it like at dinners or even at the porch of the Otisaga there in Cooperstown. You know, he just, I was always struck by just how he found ways, whether it was a look, a joke, a handshake, whatever, to connect with as many people he was around as possible. Well, you're right. He was, in that regard, he was probably exactly opposite of Gibson, who enjoyed a good laugh, but didn't want anybody to know that. And where Brock didn't mind, he, he wanted everybody to know that he could laugh. And uh, and he would laugh with you, at you, at himself. You know, he was very good at laughing at himself. If you, if you point out that, that uh, once I got a little more, you know, confident in my own abilities, I'd make fun of his, I mean, some of his answers too. I said, look, now I haven't got time for it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what, what did you just say there anyway? <laughs> and he'd, he'd patiently go over it after laughing and, and knowing that he'd lost me somewhere in the, the translation. Do, do you know why he 
called St. Louis home even after his playing career? Not exactly, I guess, except many players liked it so much when they played here. I mean, Ted Simmons grew up in Detroit and he's never left. Mm -hmm. He played here. Um, so that's about all I can think of. I, I just, the, the, how they were treated by the, the fans and just the, the populace in general. Um, I don't think Lou lived in Chicago in the years he didn't, that he played for the Cubs. I think he went back to Louisiana. Um, but he never left here. You're right. He did go as far as St. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost Mizzou. Yeah. I, the reason why I asked that is because it seems like he, it's an unofficial thing, but that he took on a little, no, he took on a lot of the role as elder statesman ambassador of the Cardinals that say Musial had for so long. And I wondered if that was an appropriate description of it because he lived here he was obviously forever linked with the team, but very active, very gregarious. You know, he would be out at charity events, you know, and, and in some ways that he, you know, he inherited that elder statesman role in public that the Musial had for a long time. And that now I guess Ozzie Smith has. I think you're right. And, and you're right about Blue taking the mantle from Stan. And the thing about Lou is that, that he wanted to be asked to do those things. Mm. He didn't, you know, he wasn't, he just didn't do them because he felt an obligation to. He wanted to do them and was delighted when people asked and maybe would volunteer if they didn't ask. One of my favorite stories that Lou tells is about all the things that can go wrong when you try to steal a base. And the bravery that it takes to go where a ball, a human, and a glove are all running, are all coming towards you. <laughs> and this description that he would give of just all the things that can go wrong um, and how, you know, base stealers are, are, uh, are described as fast, but really he preferred them be described as daredevils. Yeah, that's uh... Uh, it was um, enlightening to hear him talk about base stealing and and, and uh, what a what a science it was. And he, I think, wished that more guys would have paid more attention to the science aspect of it rather than just the raw speed of it. <clears throat> but he, he enjoyed he enjoyed you know they Whitey or somebody would bring him to camp as a as a base running, base stealing coach expert, as it were. Mm -hmm. And he would make points, but he, he, even he understood that it was above his students. They just didn't understand the things that he understood about it. But it was fascinating to hear him talk about it. Yeah. yeah. He had a, he had a pupil in, in Jose Akendo who <clears throat> would listen to him and, I, I mean, I can only assume because some of the things that they would say when I talked to, you know, M Mr. Brock about stealing bases, 
And then I would hear echoes of that, you know, later in the year when talking to Jose Akendo about taking leads or something like that. I can only, I guess I'm taking a leap of faith that one got it from the other, or at least shared in those conversations. Um, do you, do you think that Lou Brock influenced what the Cardinals became in the eighties that, that, that Whitey ball is at least part Brock ball. Yeah. There was only a couple or three years in between. Right. Lou's retirement. And when, well, first thing we had Templin was here. Templin could really run. Uh, he pl- played with Brock a little bit. And then the Nazi came and Willie came, Tommy her, and then, you know, Coleman came after that. So yeah, there, there was almost a direct handoff. Maybe 1980 might've been a year where he didn't have much. 1980 was also a crappy year for the Cardinals. Yeah. yeah. One of their worst. They lost 90 some games, I think. Um, and, um, <clears throat> but yeah. And uh, <clears throat> if, what if Lou had played, All his career on artificial turf. He played some years on grass, not very many, a few. <clears throat> and um, what if he played with Vince Coleman, let's say? What if he played with William McGee and Ozzie Smith? He played three more years. I did have been 43 then, but the, what, what a track team that would have been, huh? It yeah. It was a, but I think you're, you're right that the, the handoff was made with maybe only one year involved where we, they didn't have anybody one or two years where they didn't have anybody at the, at the top level. That was, that was kind of what I wanted to end by asking you is how Bob Gibson and Lou Brock shaped the current Cardinals or what we consider the modern Cardinals. I mean, it, you know, they like Brock went out there and was a dominant pitcher and won championships and also kind of def- defined what it was to be a Cardinal and succeed in October in the same way, say the Swifties did of, of, you know, the forties, but here was it on a national TV audience. Here was it with more coverage. Here was it at a time, um, you know, of great importance for the country. And, and then you have Brock, you know, sort of setting the pace by becoming for the Cardinals, what Wills was for the Dodgers. Right. And then, you know, showing that like, okay, this is, you know, you could run and, you know, cause teams to make mistakes and, you know, that the go-go Cardinals could be a way to win. And then they did that in the eighties. How do you think those two shaped sort of the modern notion of the Cardinals? Well, Gibson, even though he's not here, is still shaping it by some of the things he's said to Jack Flaherty or that Flaherty has adopted from him as far as competitive nature. Uh, That'd be right at the top of the list, I think. And just, the ability to to trust your stuff and and Jack will carry that on long after Bob has been gone. Somehow Brock's legacy has been lost by baseball entirely that nobody steals any bases anymore or even cares about it. That's the worst part. Nobody seems to care that nobody steals any bases. And he would steal you know, more in inning than the, than the some teams steal in a week now. Um, <laughs> That's true. And, and um, that that part of the game is so Cardinal-esque that the older fans miss that. 
they missed triples. They missed guys going from first to third or, or going from first to second on steals, second to third on steals. Um, even if they didn't go, just the, the chance they might go and they're jumping around and the pitchers are throwing over and everybody's yelling and screaming. And, and now you don't have that, that thing on your club. And every spring training, we see guys stealing bases because there's no harm in if you're thrown out. But those same guys that do it in spring training don't seem to go during the seasons because they're afraid of getting thrown out. And more teams are concentrating more on it too uh, during the season than they are in the spring. Uh, so that part, you know, when you think of base stealing, historically you think of the Cardinals and Dodgers and nobody else except Ricky Henderson. And he, he played with so many different teams. It was, he didn't have one team that he stole all his bases for, most of them for the A's, but he stole for a bunch of other clubs too. But the Cardinals and Dodgers, Cardinals and Dodgers always have been stealing bases since the 80s. At least in your mind they have been, but they're not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Ricky Henderson paid for 32 teams because you have to count like the Long Island Ducks and the Newark Bears. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. So, so then how do you think they that's that's on the field? How do you think they shaped who the Cardinals are off the field? I think part of that if anybody any Cardinals I hope all the Cardinals that are Cardinals right now have met and enjoyed both those guys and how they carry themselves and and just look up at those jerseys either in spring training or, or framed in the in Bush Stadium now and having seen these guys in the flesh can kind of tie in to how competitive they were and by that how successful they were and that they had talents, but then these same players have talents. They wouldn't be in the same room. They, they, they wouldn't be in the big leagues if they didn't have talent too. So there's, there is that to achieve to that, that history of the Cardinals is something that, that I think players here would like to be part of, would like to be part of world championship teams, would like to be on the walls with those guys. They had met those guys and they were impressed by them. That's what I'm trying to describe multiple times and I'm trying to search for the words for it because over that sandwich what Bob Gibson told me was that he he said it felt like Stan Musial was present everywhere like the idea of the Cardinals was invented by Stan Musial and so in trying to write the story that's coming out in the post-dispatch later about like the the year in review for the Cardinals I tried to come up with a way to describe what if, if Musial invented the Cardinals, this notion of the Cardinals, um, then, then Gibson and Brock, they, they, they really heightened it. They modernized it. Those were the words that I kept coming to. But you just described it well. They gave it, they added to the royalty of it, essentially. I mean, th this was living history. These were the, the kings of Cardinals' paths, and they were showing what was possible. So they, they gave uh, the Cardinals added, added substance. Yeah. Because they were there to share with the, with the current players. You start from 1941 when Stan was here and you go to 63 and by that point, Gibson was here. And then Brock comes in 64 and you go to 79. And as we talked about a, a few moments ago, there's only a, a couple of years before Ozzy comes in 82 
and he, and he will be, he is, he is getting to that level of those other guys, even though he didn't start his career with the Cardinals, but neither did Brock. Brock and, and Ozzy both played a couple of years with other teams, one other team. And yeah. Ozzy will be in that same boat where he took it to 96. And then you're just three years from four years from uh, five years from pools at that point. And that's what you have today. You know, that's that those maybe six guys, I mean, you put Wayne Wright and Molina maybe as the last two on the, in the, the train there. And you can start from 1942 to, to now with about eight guys as your, as your engineers. Yeah, I I feel tremendously lucky to have met them, to have had the chance to talk to them, to to see them briefly in their element, and I consider myself also lucky to have you know been at so many games beside you, so that I could hear how you know they had their stories told by by you, by a great one. So. Um, I, I wanted to chat with you here as the year comes to an end, just to kind of, you know, know more about them. Um, I, I, I had, I did not know about all those boys and girls clubs visits by Brock. That's amazing. I mean, they, they just, there's, there's so much more to tell about these two gentlemen. Um, but it's clear how much they meant to St. Louis, but also Rick, how much they mean to you and came to mean to you as friends. Yeah. Well, thank you for just what, what you said there. I, I was my, <clears throat> privilege to to know them and it was my my honor to to have them consider me a friend and um uh, every time i'm glad to to tell some of these stories because every time i'm through talking about them i'm i'm not sad that day that they're not here but i'm i'm happy that i could remember the good times that we had that's all our responsibility now like to nurture the stories and tell them forward i i i i I hope that that continues in baseball. And thank you so much for joining me. You, can, you know, all of Rick's stories from this past year are available at stltoday.com. His, his beautiful and moving um, coverage of Lou Brock and Bob Gibson, not just the, the stories that came out, you know, immediately, but the, the stories that you wrote that followed that sort of added so many layers to who they were and not just the statistics that they brought, but, uh, but really how they shaped what we view or how we view the Cardinals and their history. They added to it um, in layers and with personalities and with performance um, and dominance that, uh, that let's, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the, 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 the current team will always chase and that's probably what makes it great. Rick, thank you so much for joining me here. Um, you can also find our year end stuff at stltoday.com and in the pages of the post dispatch, the best podcast in baseball is a, available wherever you get your podcasts including itunes it's brought to you each week by closets by design of st louis update your closets garage office pantry and more call 1-800 by design 1-800 b-y-d-e-s-i-g-n that's closet by design of st louis the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball rick it has been a challenging year um covering baseball we uh we were together trying to sort things out um, and trying to figure where we were going to go in Jupiter. And uh, and then we were together, um, though six feet apart from one another, mostly um, behind masks at, uh, at the ballparks in Kansas City. Um, I am so glad to have had you to help me through this, help me cover this team. Um, and so I just wanted to say thanks 
for you to you for that. Um, this has been unlike anything that we've had to do before, um, but I, I can't think of doing it with anybody else. Well, thank you. You did a spectacular job this year. Every game, all the travel, all the protocols you had to go through, just a stunning performance. Well, well, thanks. Let's uh, let's not have to do it again next year. I look forward to. Uh, well, we'll probably have Zoom calls next year, but I look forward to seeing you in person. I hope you have a healthy, happy holidays, Rick, and, and thank you so much for sharing these stories about Lou Brock and Bob Gibson. And let's uh, let's find ways to tell more stories about them through the years. I hear you, and, and happy holidays to you and your family too. Thank you. Thanks, Rick.